0: Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context.
1: Let's jump in the Gospel of John. And to do that, let me begin first with looking at one of our friends, how they talk about this book. It's a rather long quote from Dr. Ed Bloom. He says, the Gospel of John is a gospel apart. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because, despite of their individual emphasis, they describe many of the same events of Jesus of Nazareth. John draws mainly upon the events and discourses not found in other gospels to prove to his readers that Jesus is God in the flesh. The eternal word comes to earth. Uh, Jesus is the son of God. He's born to die as God's sacrifice for human sin. In seven miraculous signs, they prove that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And that's from John 20, verse 31. No finer gospel tract has ever been penned than John's inspired account of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. And just a comment about that word tract, T-R-A-C-T. It's an unusual word, it's kind of a Christianese word. They're pamphlets, we give a tract to someone. In fact, just this week, a friend sent me a a letter and he included two tracts. I guess he thinks I need to work on, which I do. But the tract, it's a little pamphlet. And so what Boa and Wilkerson are saying, when you read the Gospel of John, There's no better tract story to explain this gospel, this person named Jesus, than the gospel of John. Uh, Some information about John that is interesting to me, I hope it is to you, it's helpful for me. Uh, He worked alongside Peter, and you know the book of Acts, which God willing we'll look at next week, the book of Acts is a transition. It's from the Jew to the Gentile, from the nation of Israel to the whole world, from law to grace. John accompanies Peter. And we, we'll talk about John, J- James, and Peter a lot in the Gospel accounts and in the book of Acts. They form this sort of triad. Uh, he's called in Galatians uh, one of the pillars of the church in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. So John has this position, this rank, if you will. He's noted as one of the three, Peter, James, and John. And so we have the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John. He's kind of a leader, but he's also somewhat quiet in the text, and the storyline, which is intriguing about him. Now, when we talked about the Gospel of Mark, you may recall that I said Peter was the primary author speaking, telling the story. Mark is the one who writes it. So the Gospel of Mark is probably the oldest. In some respects, it is shortest, but it's also the most difficult. But what Mark comprises, let's consider it sort of a source it becomes a, a playlist of what other gospel writers will use. Now, don't misunderstand. The Holy Spirit inspires these men to write the Bible, but they are influenced by what's available to them. Remember we talk about the big A author God, and the little A author is, in this case, John or Mark or Peter. So John is going to write from his experience of watching Peter, of hearing Peter, Peter teach, of what Mark probably compiled as a corpus may well have been available to John. So this gospel is going to be sown not only on Peter's experience, but on John's experience as one of the inner circle. Now let's talk about some general or high-level observations about the gospel of John. Um, it is the most theological and the most cosmopolitan. Those are two phrases you'll see if you read commentaries about John that are very common to find. Theological cosmopolitan. What do they mean? Well, the theology talking about God, who is this God, and you know this, but just as a reminder, anytime ology is on the back of the word, it means the study of, right? So biology is the study of life. Theology, theos, is the study of God. So when we read the Gospel of John, it's laden with some deep, deep theology, but it's cosmopolitan meaning it's easy to read. The man on the street, the woman on the street, the cosmopolitan, they can understand it. Said another way, it's often explained as the most profound yet simple gospel. I don't like those words because they have a, a meaning and a nuance that's overused, but they're accurate in the sense that it's easy to read this book, but there's a depth to it that can be missed unless we take a little bit of time. I remember uh, in seminary when you learn New Testament Greek. The first book you translate is the Gospel of John because it's written in such simple Greek. And it's like, oh, I can can read Greek. Well, you can't yet, but you think you can because it's such an easy primer in a way. But don't let that be misleading. It's profound in the depth of what he writes, which we'll see. So keep that in mind. It's theological. It's cosmopolitan. It's simple. It's profound. And the fabric of that's hard to miss. Uh, Theologians sometimes call this Johannine theology. And of course, we have the Gospel of John, and then we have three letters, first, second, and third John, and then, of course, the book of Revelation. So, God willing, we'll get to those in the future. But let, let me just read, and I want you to follow John chapter 1, the first five verses called the prologue. And you'll get a sense of this is super easy to read, but if you take a moment to look at it, it puts you on your heels theologically. You follow as I read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, that's a head-scratcher right there. Who's the Word? Well, Jesus Christ, of course. And the pronoun he or him is Jesus in this whole section. Let me read verse 1 again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So Christ is with God, and the Word was God. So he's referring to Jesus as the Word, who's going to be incarnate, to explain God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light, and that's capital in most Bibles, the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In my sanctified imagination, and I read Paul's writings in Colossians, Jesus Christ is the one affecting creation. Jesus, we've talked about many times, makes man, Adam, out of dirt. He made the creation. I don't know how he made the worlds. I don't know how he made the stars. I don't know how he made the, the bodies that separate all that we read in the in the uh, in the creation account, but Jesus Christ is at work doing that, and that's what John is telling us in these first five verses. Another general observation of the book of John is how many times he uses the word believe. It's ninety eight times in your English Bible. So even a casual reader who's paying attention would say, whoa, this over and over and over that you might believe these things are written so that you believe and the nuances of that word are a study in and of themselves. Um, Another observation from a high-level view is John's Christology. And again, when I talk about ology, just the study of something. Zoology, the study of animals, right? Christology, the study of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And John's Christology Is exceptional. It's not that the other writers don't have a great, strong Christology. It's that John's, we might say, is superlative. It's wonderful. It's beautiful the way he explains the person and work of Jesus Christ. And again, while all gospels are focused on the work of Christ and the person, uh, John's got a unique spin, let's say. And listen again to Dr. Ed Bloom. John's gospel is so clear and pointed in his Christology that his theology has greatly enriched the church. The text, quote, the word became flesh, from chapter 1, verse 14, became the central focal point of the early church fathers' meditation and study. John presented the incarnation, that is, God manifests in the flesh, as the foundation of of the gospel. And uh, I'm in a study group I've talked about a number of times we are going through Augustine's Confessions. And when you read something written 340 years after the death of Christ, life, death, burial, resurrection, and you read about this incarnation debate, how did God become a man? How is he fully God and fully man? How can he be man and suffer and die and yet be God? How can he come back from the dead? And these questions consumed Everyone, even in the first century, and so understanding the incarnation, how God became man and dwelt among us, how He was born uh, under the Roman law, under uh, through a virgin by the by God's instruction for the Holy Spirit, that Mary will conceive. How did these How did this happen? This was integral in laying a foundation for John's theology. Let's think about some things the gospel doesn't include there's some things that are not in John's gospel. And you read, really, wow, I never thought of that, but they're not in the gospel. First of all, there's no genealogy. We don't have the history of who begat, who begat, who begat coming down to Jesus. Secondly, there's no record of his birth or baptism. And we've seen many times in the gospels, and I've emphasized this, uh, the baptism is so pivotal because that's when the voice from heaven speaks, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That's the Holy Spirit descending as a dove. People heard, some of them heard that word. So God is identifying, authenticating, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Later, listen to him, do what he tells you to do. And that Trinitarian Godhead is illustrated in the baptism, identifying him as one of mine. That's mine. No, that's me. I'm there. I'm present, which was a head scratcher for everyone. John doesn't have the birth narrative or a baptism narrative. uh, Thirdly, the temptation account isn't mentioned. Now, again, on our other gospels, we have the identification by baptism. Then we go into the temptation, which makes sense. So Christ is being identified as the God man, and now he'll be tempted as a man for the 40 days and 40 nights. There's no casting out of demons in the gospel of John. There are no parables. That's striking when you think about how powerful the stories Jesus told continue to be to this day. John doesn't include them. The transfiguration isn't included. Peter, James, and John, he's a player. He was part of it. He doesn't include the transfiguration, nor does he include the establishment of the Lord's Supper, which is another ponderous thing. And he doesn't include Gethsemane, where Jesus is sweating drops of blood, where he's praying to be delivered, nor does he include the ascension of Jesus Christ. So that's what he doesn't include. And I just give that to you to understand, we talk about the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, how they're very similar in ways and overlap. John's the outlier. So he's not one of the synoptics, but what he, we would say, brings to the table is magnificent from that theological and cosmopolitan way, we look at the person and work of Jesus. Well, let's look at what the Gospel of John does include and in some respects is not a part of the synoptics. Number one, his ministry in Jerusalem. John has more detail about Jesus in the city proper, the holy city of Jerusalem, than our other writers. Secondly, the feasts. Um, for the Jew to understand the feast Let's say the Feast of Booze, the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes called the same thing, Passover, uh, the first fruits. These were, you know, we think as Americans about maybe Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter or spring break or you know something we get excited about, Fourth of July, maybe. These national holidays would transcend the excitement that we have in our country. They would be so excited to go to the Feast of Booze Tabernacles to go up to Passover. John speaks more about those than the other gospel writers. The one-on-one conversations that Jesus has with individuals stands out in enormous ways in the gospel. Uh, There are arguably six, maybe seven of these conversations we get to peer in. We think of Nicodemus in John 3, that he's talking to Nicodemus who comes at night. He's one of the Sanhedrin. We might say he snuck for fear of being found out. Who are you? Where are you from? What are you doing? We have the woman at the well. We have the man in John chapter 9 who's blind from birth. And we have these one-on-one interactions that God has with individuals that we don't see in other gospels. We also have a more intimate look at what Jesus taught the 12. And we get this in, in great depth. And one of them would be in the high priestly prayer where he's with them, he's, the, the washing of their feet's occurred, Judas has gone to the betrayal, and now we have this high priestly prayer section. We have what's called the book of signs, where John almost has an open and closing to these are things he did, and then we have the seven IMs. So those are just some of the things that are unique included in the gospel of John that you won't have in the same way in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Let's look at these signs in brief, as well as the IMs. First of all, the seven signs. Let me just read through them. He changes water into wine at Canaan. He heals the official son at Capernaum. He heals the invalid by the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. He feeds the 5,000 at the Sea of Galilee, which sidebar, you know, when you read the 5,000 and 4,000, some people think that was a, a... Maybe the same story told two different ways. Those are two different feedings. Secondly, and most importantly to me, is that number needs to be multiplied by at least two. Because, um, like it or not, uh, they only counted the head of household. So when a group came out, they counted the family units. Okay, there's a group of 10 there, we're just counting one. Maybe there's a group of two, we're just counting one. So if we're conservative, we can say the number was at least 10 12,000 if they had a child, their mother-in-law, maybe a widow. So there's a large gathering. So these feedings, not that it matters if you fed 5,000 or 20,000, it's still a miracle. But just as a oh-by-the-way point, uh, walking on the water in the Sea of Galilee, the healing of the blind man in chapter 9, and then, of course, raising Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. So these seven signs that John records, there were more miracles But the Holy Spirit is guiding John to write a story that's easy to read, cosmopolitan, deep and rich in theological comprehension. And each of these signs is making a big statement about who this Jesus is. Back to the question of incarnation. How can he be God and be man? Well, let me show you. He can turn water into wine. He can heal a a person at a distance he can uh, heal a guy who's been blind from birth he can raise somebody from the dead let me show you the signs remember the signs and wonders emphasis always come back to god authenticating or identifying this is real you can trust this you can believe this to be true Well, let's look briefly then at the seven I am. So we have the seven signs that John records. We also have these I am statements. And this, of course, takes us back to Exodus when uh, Moses is having this dialogue with a voice in a burning bush. Uh, Who do I say is sending me to Pharaoh? And it's this fabulous little puzzle we have called the Tetragrammaton. It goes, you say I am sent you. And that word... uh, some people don't like to pronounce it Yahweh. It was called Jehovah in the King James. Uh, but it's, it's four radicals that say consonants in the Hebrew language. And sometimes you see it written out Yahweh or Yahwah. We don't know how to pronounce it. But it was self-identification. God says, you want to tell them who, who I am? Tell them I am. These statements that Jesus used, uh, Jesus used would pierce the heart of the devout Jew that heard him say this I am. So let's briefly look at each of these I am's. These are the way Jesus is revealing himself to his audience. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door or some translations say the gate for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. And finally, I am the true vine. Now, just to pause on these for just a moment because each of these could be a series of messages and they are fascinating. But what is he saying in each one of them? Self revelatory, I'm the bread of life. This is gonna occur right before the feeding. I'm, I'm life, if you eat of me, you will live forever. Is he talking about his physical corporal body? No, it's who he is. I've come to be the eternal bread. What would the pious you think of? manna. They would think of this crusty thing that formed on the ground during the wilderness wanderings, six out of seven days. They would gather it, They would roast it, bake it, cook it, eat it. You could do all sorts of things with it. And it was every day God's going to provide for you what you need to live. That was a temporal lesson of an eternal reality. And Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I'm not just a temporal solution to your hunger. I'm an eternal eternal solution to your hunger. Um, The light of the world in John chapter 8 verse 12, which is a remarkable passage. What did John say in the prologue in the first five verses? The light came to the darkness. Here Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now why this one is so important to me is this is right before he heals the blind man in John chapter 9. And you remember that story because he's an object lesson. The disciples are walking along. The man has no interaction. He's not begging for Jesus. Hey, come over here and heal me. Uh, he's just minding his own blind business. And he's sitting there and the disciples say, who sinned this man that he should be born blind? So it was a congenital issue. He was born blind. And what the disciples are asking is, did he sin in, the, in utero? Because some Jews believed you could actually sin In your mother's womb. Others believed it was your parents' sin, and the consequence of that sin landed on the child. So they're asking the question Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And of course, you remember Jesus' response, neither, but that the glory of God might be revealed. And as that story unfolds, Jesus is going to spit and put mud on his eyes and send him to the pool of Siloam, which is a big wordplay. And so he does that. The man goes to Siloam, he washes, and he sees. He goes back, and it's one of the greatest stories. It's full of comedy and tragedy in John 9, where this man is being grilled by the, the scribes and Pharisees, and they make a very cryptic, pointed statement. It's never been heard of that anyone has healed a blind man. What are they saying? This hadn't been done before. There's a much bigger lesson here. If Jesus can give sight to the blind, he's Messiah. Miracle, the miracle of healing the blind was reserved for Jesus Christ. Other miracles happen in the Bible. They happen through Moses, through Elijah, through Elisha. Miracles did occur. Miracles occur during the disciples' time. The one miracle reserved for Jesus Christ, Messiah, was blindness. And we've talked about this before in Isaiah, that he would give sight to the blind. No one had ever done that. So they're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's never been heard of. Who did this? You were born in your sin. You're you're really not, you're not the one. You're you're tricking us. You're deceiving us. And they throw them out because they can't handle it. Because if they embrace for one moment that the I am of John 8, 12, I'm the light of the world. Let me show you how I can demonstrate that. I can give a congenitally blind man a new set of eyes. I can create eyesight. And of course, you either have to believe him or you have to find a way to deny him and get rid of him. So each of these I am's is full of that kind of backstory and how the current audience would hear it. Of course, the biggest I am we could argue is really, I am the resurrection and the life. And this happens in his discussion with Martha and Mary about Lazarus' death. Jesus is away. He hears the report. Lazarus is sick. He delays three days. He goes finally. They're so upset. If you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And he asked the question, do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? Of course I believe. And his comment, I am the resurrection of life. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. So each of these I am's builds. Water to wine is an element change. It breaks the laws of physics and science and biology. Each of them is something supernatural, above nature that he does in the signs, the way he declares himself in the I am, let me show you what I can do, not performing like a magician. Let me show you what I can do to teach you who I am. Let me show you the power of God so you'll believe that I am God. Those are the signs and the wonders and the seven I am's. I don't think it's an overstatement and I would encourage you as a sidebar study, sometime to take the seven IMs, to take the seven miracles, to put them side by side, and then look at the people involved before and after each of those signs and IMs. It will blow your mind. The connectivity John uses in the book of signs and the seven IMs and these key people is remarkable. So when he says, I am, Or a sign accompanies it. When did it happen? What was the timing in John's gospel? And what was his point? And that's why this gospel becomes so personal. Because these are people he's talking about. Individuals. The woman at the well. This is a woman. You don't talk to women. Much less a Samaritan woman. And John records who this Jesus is. These are the signs he performs. And this is how he authenticates it. And identifies it. This is who I am. The sign and the self-revelation. Well, let's look at an outline, and I don't mean in the traditional sense, but what I want to call a progression, because I think this gives you a little insight on how John is writing this supernatural, wonderful piece of literature. So the prologue is the first 18 verses of chapter 1, and the prologue is basically saying this is who Jesus is. This is an introduction It's followed by what we call the book of signs, which are Jesus' miracles. So here's Jesus. Now let me prove it to you, if I will. Let me show you what he did. Only God could do these things, which is followed by Jesus' farewell instructions. It's a quick jump. Who is he? This is what he does. Now he's teaching his disciples, I'm going to leave soon. And this is how I'm going to leave. And then fourth... We have this passion and resurrection section, which all the gospels have. But John's emphasis is more on the unbelief of what's happening to people. When you are exposed to the life, death, burial, in Jesus Christ, you have one of two responses. You want to go, wow, that happened? Or how'd that happen? I don't know that I believe that. And just like the birth of Jesus Christ the death of Jesus Christ, the resurrection. These are fulcrum opportunities for every human being to say, I believe it. I don't think I buy it. It's just a story. It's just made up. So John's argument is, who is he? The introduction, who is he? Let me show you the seven things, not the only did seven, the one he picks, the seven things to prove who he is. Now, let me teach my disciples because I'm soon to depart. And then we have the epilogue section which he comes back and he's encouraging technically the 11, but there's a larger group of disciples as well. So the progression of his outline is so extraordinary to see how he does this. It's not just a you know start, middle of the story, end of the story. You, you could call it a story arc if you want. That's fine. There's a theological arc here. And that's one of the reasons John is such a compelling, wonderful book to study beyond how easy it is to read. Well, let's sort of conclude with some themes and some uh, broad observations about the book. Um, the first one is a hard one for most of us to, to accept, but the road to glory is always suffering. The Gospel of John brings this out in some pretty poignant ways, but when you think about your life and mine, um, why do we think life's going to work out a certain way? Why do we think, as I often say, if in theology, if I do this, then God will do that? If Jesus Christ's road to glory was suffering, who are we to think that we won't go through struggles and disappointments and the consequences of sins? Our own sins, the sins of others, or just the broken world in which we live. So the road to glory involves suffering. You can't separate that from the life of Christ. You cannot separate it from the Christian life. Secondly, the new birth. The new birth is a wonderful part of the Gospel of John. Uh, John 3.16 is a, a wonderful verse for obvious reasons. Um, you may remember, if you're old enough, there was a man who went around all the NFL games for years, and he had this, he'd smuggle a wig in that was a rainbow wig, and he'd unfurl a John 3.16 banner in the end zone when the team was uh, kicking a field goal or, or a conversion attempt. And he was known for that. And it Ill- illustrates how well known John 3.16 was. In fact, uh, those of you that know my story uh, might know this, but let's read the verse again. For God so loved the world, he so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son. You could also read that unique, his only unique son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I was in a Sunday school class in ninth, between eighth and ninth grade, and the uh, teacher on a green chalkboard Handed a paperback copy of the Gospel of John. And we read the story of Nicodemus. And he wrote John 3.16 with white chalk on a green chalkboard. And I was sitting in the back, long hair down my shoulders. Didn't want to be in that dumb Sunday school class. And I'm sitting there. And we read the story. And he writes that verse. And I said, are you telling me all I have to do is believe? And he goes, well, what does the verse say? I don't know if I asked three or ten questions, but in my mind I remember asking some follow-up questions. What about this? What about that? Don't you have to go to church and do all these good things? And he kept saying, what does the verse say? And I sat up metaphorically in that chair and went, you mean all I have to do is believe? And that moment I went from death to life. That moment I went from an unrepentant, engorged in sin teenager To a forgiven person. That moment I was born again. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Look at it again. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So I'm putting my faith, my belief, my trust in Jesus Christ to do for me what I can never do for myself. I think I was 15 years old when that happened. I still remember it. I still remember the green chalkboard. I still remember the paperback copy of the Gospel of John. It's a powerful, poignant verse, and many people have come to know Jesus through those simple phrases. The theme continues, not just this being saved and born again, but we're given eternal life. Look at John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Let me read that again. He who believes in the Son, how do you have eternal life? you believe in Christ but he who does not does not obey the son excuse me but he who does not obey the son will not see life but the wrath of god abides on him we like the first part of that verse we don't like the second john is saying if you believe in the son you're going to live eternally with him but he says if you do not obey him you will not see life you'll see wrath so this, this uh, decision is a big decision for any person who comes to, to be exposed to the information, to learn. This is, what, what's he like? Here are the signs. Here's what he did. Here are the people's lives whom he changed, even brought one back from the dead. Let me tell you, disciples, this is how you're going to have to live after I'm gone. They're fearful. They're confused. They're worried. He comes back after his resurrection to remind them, let me encourage you one more time. It's going to be okay. I've solved the sin condition. Now you do what I've asked you to do. And when we're presented with the personal work of Jesus, it's not just an intellectual conversation. It's not just a, what do you think about this? What's your opinion? Do you believe? Do you believe? Almost 100 times it's about believing. Look at John 5:24. Another lovely record of what Jesus is saying. Truly, truly, I say to you, he here's my word. And believes him who sent me has eternal life. Let's pause there for just a second. You hear it? You believe it? You got it. He who hears my word and believes, notice, in him who sent me has eternal life. And does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. That verse cements John's theology. It cements who Jesus was. And if you hear him and you believe in him and him who sent him, you are given eternal life and you live forever with him. A remarkable passage about the love of Christ. Finally, a theme that's easy to see when you read the Gospel of John is how clear it is. And some would argue it's the clearest presentation of what we call the gospel. It's the clearest presentation of the statement of who this Jesus Christ is. So when we've talked about these books in the big book series, um, sometimes we say, what's the point of this book? Why was it written? To whom it was written? John answers that with super clarity. And we end with this, John 20, verse 31. But these have been written so that you may believe, let me stop for a second, we talk about this a lot, so that is a purpose clause, or uh, not to get too technical, but there's a reason coming behind this. Why did I write that? Let me tell you, I wrote it so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Why did I record this? Why did the big A author inspire the little A author, John, to take the time to record this book? Why did he do that? So that you may believe. Did you, why go to all this trouble? Why take this time? Why record the prologue about what, who he is? Why write about the signs he did? Why write about the seven IMs of what he said about himself? Why write about his death, burial, resurrection? Why write about the apostles' confusion and his encouragement to come back and tell them, Trust me, trust me, believe me. Why did I write this? So you'd believe. It's a simple gospel. It's profound in depth. You'll never wear it out by studying it. But there could not be a more important time. COVID, confusion, money, loss of jobs, all the swirl that goes around, social media wearing us out. There couldn't be a better time for you to have clarity. Do you know that you know that you know who this Jesus is. John wrote a book. This is who he is. Let me show you who he is. Let me show you how he proved who he is. Yes, there's confusion and debate about it. Yes, people didn't believe him. Yes, people killed him. He came back from the dead. He lived. He died. He was buried to confirm his death. He's resurrected to confirm his power over death, to overcome death. And he gives an offer whosoever wills whoever believes in the son of man look at it one last time that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that believing that it's not just oh yeah i believe he's god's son yeah i believe in jesus i believe in jesus like other historical figures no if you believe and trust in the person work of Christ john says you will have eternal life it's the most important decision any person ever makes. To come to the word of God, to come to the person and work of Jesus Christ, the word made flesh and dwelt among us, to come to him and realize he's the only solution for your sin condition, for my sin condition. There is no other way. There's no guilt to deal with, no shame to deal with, no what if to deal with. When you trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, he died in your behalf, in your place, instead of you, He took your sin upon himself, died, buried, confirmation of death, resurrected confirmation. He overcame the death and the power of death. And he offers eternal life to any and all who believe. It's the greatest transaction ever offered in the universe. Our prayer, our hope, I I would talk with you all day long to encourage you. If you do not know who this Jesus is, read this little gospel of John. See who he says he is. See how he talks about himself. See how he cares about a woman by a well. How he cares about a religious leader who comes at night who's unsure what he believes. How he deals with a blind man, never seeing anything in his life. He cares. And every one of those sin conditions is an example of our ultimate condition. It's not just that we're blind and we can't see, we're spiritually blind. It's not that we're deaf and we can't hear. We can't hear spiritually. So every one of these is recorded that you might believe. Do you know him? Have you placed your trust in Christ and Christ alone? He will forgive you of your sins. He will welcome you as part of the family of God. His Holy Spirit will indwell you. Wow, that's a big one to think through. The person of the Spirit will indwell you and he will help you and me as we live out this thing called the Christian life. How much did He love you? Enough to die for you, enough to reveal Himself to you, enough to tell you the story that you have just heard and probably heard many more times in your life. This thing called the Christian life. How much did He love you? Enough to die for you, enough to reveal Himself to you, enough to tell you the story that you've just heard and probably heard many more times in your life
0: Easily in context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hole, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates.